The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. This is Gone by Lunchtime. It's April 13 in the year 2022. Two very special guests with me here today, Ben Thomas. Thank you. And uh, Annabelle Lee Mather. Kia ora. Are we really guests? Well, what I'd like to do is just... Are we manuhiri tuarangi or just like fairly local? Yeah, I think you're probably tangata whenua. Toby's just trying to keep keep us at arm's length to avoid being hurt again after we were on Tova's show. It was quite hurtful. Oh, my God. That was such a sexy little encounter with Tova the other morning, wasn't it? (laughs) We just gave her seven minutes of like our best... Stuff. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. You can do what you like. Yeah. You're, we we were thinking about you, Toby. Men and women. You know. Yeah, about how much better it was without you. <laughs> Kia ora ti ai here. Kia ora, Toby. Uh, we're in a new studio, which is pretty cool. How's it going so far? It's drenched in sunlight, and there's a plant over there. Mm, Couldn't be beautiful monstera. We do actually have natural light coming into the studio for the first time since we used to be in that rickety old attic. Down on Custom Street, do you remember mm, that? I do, yeah. Oh, that's right, and this this one doesn't have traffic noise either, so it's the best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Mm. That's true. Hey, we're going to talk today uh, about things like um, Ukraine, about things like fair pay agreements, about things like actually Bloomfield. Louisa Wall's, Wall's still around, and we'll have a word from Wyna Jackson. Let's kick off, though, by... No, let's kick off by saying thanks to members, which is important because we really... Uh, love spin-off members for helping us continue this podcast, which is almost as good as listening to Ben and Annabelle. If it wasn't for the if it wasn't for the members, we wouldn't have the beautiful dappled sunlight filtering through the studio right now. The monstera would be as dead as the ones at my house. It'd be like the peace lily that lives in my lounge or di- dies in my lounge. Ukraine. This morning at eight a.m. the Hercules C-130 headed off for its five-day trip to Europe. This is a 1969 aircraft, I kid you not. Um, Lovely aircraft, though. But it is a sort of, Ben, it's a sort of step up. It's a step change in terms of New Zealand's support for the Ukrainian response to the invasion from Russia. I don't want to be overdramatic about it. You don't want it's not like we're at war per se, but it is, uh, you know, and... Together with that contribution, there's 58 or something personnel going. Um, Only a few of them are on the Herc itself. And we've also committed some millions of dollars to be funneled via the UK for purchasing lethal, for lethal aid, as they call it, for, for purchasing weapons. So we're in there. It's different. Can I just say my main concern mm. is like some kid's going to run outside with a pea shooter or a slingshot and shoot our Hercules out of the sky. <laughs> it's um, We're getting new Hercs, aren't we? We've got them on order, I think. Uh, but these C-130s, yeah, 1969, that's, that's going back a bit. It is. Have you been on one of those planes before? I haven't. Ben? No, I, n- I never got to go on any junkets. That was actually, this was um, one of the great, uh, I guess, inequalities. Um, I was pressing mm. for um, 
the Attorney General, who was the Minister of Treaty Wolf Waitangi negotiations. So I've been to I've been to many many uh, crumbling marae in all sorts of parts of New Zealand. Yeah. Probably um, r- ridden a horse. Somewhere. I've <laughs> seen a lot of horses. Um, they had the DPS sort of swerve out of the way of them. Um, but, yeah, whereas my colleagues who are in the Prime Minister's office or the Foreign Affairs Minister's office, you know, would come back with stories of being sort of born in motorcades, you know, with armed <laughs> armed police outriders on motorcycles mm. sweeping through the capital cities. And, um, yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's, it's fine. Gisborne's fine. Mm. It's nice. Um, this is a conversation about the geopolitical consequences of New Zealand's contribution to the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm just saying I've never been on here. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a shift, isn't it? It's a shift in, in the contribution. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, in, in terms of uh, will this be the decisive moment that turns the tide of the conflict? Probably not. Probably, probably not. Um, you know, sending fifty people over there. Or, you know, I assume they'll be helping with intelligence and and those sorts of things. Mm. I guess I don't mm. know. Um, and uh, you know, but obviously not boots on the ground. Uh, you know, outside forces. You know, that that's sort of the red line which uh, the West can't cross in Ukraine, uh, is basically going over the border from Poland or any of the other neighbouring countries and actually mm. being in the Ukraine physically or, or sort of enforcing a no-fly zone, that kind of thing, um, because that widens the conflict, which is already uh, extremely ugly on a regional level, um, into, you know, well, you know, people keep saying World War Three, but at, at any rate, a, a war with... Uh, significant potential downside, to say the least, uh, for, for the world. Uh, you know, it, it, look, it is it is a ramping up of commitments. There was commi- there was <clears throat> criticism, you know, internationally. If you count the Wall Street Journal as international, uh, that New Zealand wasn't sort of really pulling its weight early on. We we're very slow to enact sanctions because of this um, clinging to the idea of uh, you know the UN as the appropriate body to give sanctions. But of course, you know, Russia being on the Security Council can can veto that. So one of these ironies that our um, our so-called independent foreign policy uh, means that uh, any, you know, in theory, any of our um, any of our stances can be vetoed by monstrous world powers like Russia and China. Uh, so, you know, this this is a step up, uh, particularly the commitment of uh, what they call lethal aid weapons, mm. essentially, or money for weapons. Mm. Um, really interesting, Penny Henare. Um, who has quite a quite loose discipline around sort of uh, collective cabinet responsibility, and uh, uh, mentioned that he had he had sought permission from cabinet to actually have some of our weapons sent over um, javelin anti tank missiles, missiles. Um, <clears throat> which might have just been a way of bragging that the New Zealand military actually had anti tank missiles. I, know. I, I think that's going back a bit. I, I think he also said he that wasn't put to cabinet on Monday. It, not on Monday. No, yeah. it had previously yeah. been sort of raised. Yeah, it's been and uh, so so you know this this seems like a a better solution. Just give them money; they can get it from you know the the sort of interested powers who have you know production lines of this stuff, uh, as opposed to getting rid of our scarce but well, newly discovered anti tank defences. I mean, our contributions to anything on this scale is always going to be symbolic, isn't it? And that was underlined at the post-cabinet press conference on Monday, Annabelle, when uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister and the Chief Defence Force, uh, just were asked about those Javelin missiles and it was uh, revealed that probably if we had provided those Javelin missiles, it was expiring quite quickly, so in a way it's kind of like, you know, take the, take this, take this stuff, but it, they would have probably been used up in about five minutes in, in that conflict. Um, and so our contributions are inherently symbolic, and I guess the one that we haven't pulled yet uh, is whether or not to expel the ambassador. The, argue, argue, the, the chief argument against being, it seems, that, well, that would provide a tip for tat. The quid pro quo from that would be that our people in Moscow would then be expelled almost inevitably and that would lose us that kind of ability to provide consular support for people in Russia. Do you think that that's a step that we should be taking? What, is there anything else we can do? Well, Does it matter? as someone who's deeply opposed to to war, I think, you know, whether it's sending javelins or providing lethal aid is something that I that I think is a you know, 
not the right thing for, step for a right. step too far. Yeah. I would much have would have I think it would have been better to have kicked out um, um, the Russian ambassador. Um, obviously, we're under pressure from our allies to look like we're ponying up and joining the fight, but I think there's far more constructive ways that we could have done that, and I think that kicking out the Russian ambassador rather than um, chipping in for mm. for um, for weapons mm. is a, would have been a far more principled um, and helpful approach because, by definition, weapons are going to harm and, you know, aid is going to aid. So I, I think we would have been better off providing stronger support for um, refugees, mm. rehoming people, you know, humanitarian efforts. So I, I think it's a, yeah, I'm, I'm sad that this is the stance that New Zealand is taking. It's interesting, isn't it, because of that kind of incremental approach where we've taken one little step further, a little inching further bit by bit, there hasn't quite been that when is the point at which it changes its shape materially insofar as even in previous conflicts where we've sent even peacekeeping troops or or support troops, it's been there's been a an argument that this is an engagement in a war that, that is too far. Whereas this one it doesn't I, I mean I may have missed it, but I don't think I've seen a very strong pushback against this change. The thing too is if we've kicked out um the Russian ambassador, like that sends a message that we're serious and even if our people have got kicked out of Russia, like you're in Europe, like you're not too far from a from another type of consulate, but you know, seven and a half million dollars of arms, it's more than some treaty settlements. I, I don't know how many New Zealanders uh, are currently in Moscow and need consular support. Um, I would have thought that, you know, ending diplomatic ties with Russia, you know, in terms of, you know, embassy exchanges mm. was probably, you know, symbolically sort of the the right thing to do. They won't need to be on hand to sort of organise Jacinda Ardern's state visit because she's been blacklisted from Russia along with all the other yes. MPs uh, in New Zealand. Um, you know, nobody will have to choose the menu. Uh, the, the, the consular staff probably don't have a lot to do over there. Um, it, it, you know, the, the, where this becomes an issue, uh, you know, I think there's two things there. The first is, you know, in terms of New Zealand's contribution to a war, you know, we've, we've heard sort of Jacinda Ardern, David Seymour, a few politicians say, n- refusing to be drawn on the idea of whether Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. Mm. Um, and, and that sort of maintains this sort of legal fiction that, uh, that international law is a real thing, that, you know, you don't want to prejudice Vladimir Putin's right to a fair trial at The Hague. Vladimir Putin will never be at The Hague. Uh, There will never be a trial. Uh, If there was a trial, whatever the, you know, international criminal court judges who were there, they wouldn't be influenced by, you know, the the, the stray-off-the-cuff remarks of New Zealand politicians. Um, This is, you know, this is a moral thing. You know, this is the the only court here is the court of public opinion. It can't issue binding verdicts, no matter how bad public opinion is. Vladimir Putin will not withdraw from Russia, uh, from the from Ukraine, uh, and so this is really just you know it's about stating you know New Zealand's values, given you know the sort of horrors that we're hearing out of the out of Ukraine right now. But equally, if you're going to apply it to one, then you kind of have to apply it to all. So then, you know, are we going to start calling out Tony Blair and George Bush and all of those ones too? I guess you know. Yeah. War criminals, please put your hands up. Yeah. <laughs> what's going on in Yemen? What's happening in Syria? There's lots of examples that we could yeah. say. On that West point Papua. about the international law, of course you're right that these things, there aren't there aren't the same processes that we find in domestic jurisdictions. On the other hand, if you want to afford integrity to those mm. institutions in the future, there's still some responsibility on states' people not to go around and sort of make those determinations. To follow due you know? process. I mean, they have said that war crimes are being committed. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm not going to give them too much grief for stopping short of starting to announce who are war criminals on the stage. Should we talk about fair play agreements? The um, It's quite a big part of the Labour program. The, the, the previous Labour-led government was criticised quite a lot for having a lot of working groups, uh, for not getting a whole lot of stuff done. There was the delivery promises, there was Kiwi Build, there was, of course, um, the small matter of a pandemic that brushed everything else to one side. But when we're looking for major legislative changes that are enacted under this Labour majority government, I don't think you can go a lot further than the fair pay agreements. 
legislation which was just passed its first mm. reading in the House and will go to select committee. And it essentially uh, creates a, a new system for negotiating industry-wide pay agreements. Mm. So far excludes contractors, but they, that's just because that's complicated and they want to include that in, 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 in the future so that it can take in, for example, Uber drivers or couriers or so on. Podcast hosts. Podcast hosts. But, mm. yes, well, as a, a base, oh. it'll be interesting to see whether political, the political podcast sector mm. um, is able to... In order to do that, we'd need to get either 1,000 of, <laughs> of our members, <laughs> the union responsible for us need to get 1,000 of our members or 10%. Of our membership, which might be more achievable than one thousand, mm. I haven't done the maths mm. on it. And then what we would do is, I think the union would then go to the employment relations authority, and then they would engage a representative from businesses. Business NZ were involved at an early stage, but they have withdrawn and they're not supporting it, and then neither are the, 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 the EMA, and um, so there is opposition there. But basically, then we would enter a, a mediation process, I think. Or, and, and try and negotiate some kind of some floor uh, rules, some floor payment bases for political podcast contributors, and then uh, that would go to be to be to be signed off. What's the word I'm looking for? Approved, endorsed, endorsed uh, you know, sealed, ratified, seats. maybe one of those words mm. uh, by the people involved. Sealed in but wax by Michael Wood, the, if, um, the employment <laughs> relations, the workplace. If the political minister. podcasters couldn't come to an agreement with the political podcast bosses, the overlords of political mm. podcast minions, if we couldn't do that. Then it would, after a few, you know, if, if, that, if that fails, then it goes to the employment relations authority, who, who I think, if I had it right in saying, are empowered to. To make set it, the terms. To make it make a call themselves. Do we get to have a be. hikoi at any point? Oh, there's going to be a hikoi. Cool. Now, you can't, well, it, it, that's an interesting point. So I, I think you're not allowed to strike in support of a fair oh, pay right, agreement. Oh, right, yes, okay, okay. Uh, so that's, Once you're that's, in that process. Yeah, well, that's that's off the table. You can't strike it's in, it, it, to support the bargaining of a fair pay agreement. So it's, it's different from a collective <laughs> agreement uh, signed between a union and an employer for that reason, or a multi-employer collective agreement, which is signed between either one or many unions with yeah. one or many employers, of which which haven't really <clears throat> borne they, fruit as an idea. So this, this they haven't taken off because they were purely voluntary. This and and so th- th- there was so in in the old this is this is actually a bit of an effort to wind back time a bit. In, in Takes back thirty years, will you, Ben? Oh, look, let's go back hundreds. Let's go back a hundred thousand years. It, 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 the, the, originally, unions were outlawed. Can right? you do some? Can you do some mood music on this, Bells? <laughs> Just uh, kind of, <laughs> it'd be like a proper podcast. We would layer over some kind of antique baroque cello. Mm. In in the nineteenth century, unions were illegal, right? And the basis for that was saying they're a cartel. So they basically sort of said in the same way that all of the petrol companies get together and <laughs> determine their prices and gouge the public. You know, they look there are sometimes directly emphysemic miners, you know, dying on the job, <laughs> losing <laughs> limbs. And they were like, it's the same. <laughs> it's, you know, they're using their market power to sort of, you know, crush these like little employers. So union activity was illegal. In New Zealand, uh, that was changed. There was a... Um, there was a, a very centralised sort of system of uh, negotiation between un- unions uh, and employers, and, and it would be arbitrated by the government. That was the old arbitration system, and that's you know there were various sort of sort of variations on that, but but essentially before um, you know le- leading up to the eighties and in the in parts of the eighties, there were you know it was it was essentially. It wasn't compulsory unionism, but close enough. And the union negotiated pretty much the pay across sectors. Unions spent a lot of time arguing amongst each other about which, you know, who got control of which sector, uh, because that meant more income for them. Uh, and 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 everything was sort of decided centrally. My first job out of um, university was with the Employers and Manufacturers Association up in Auckland. And it had been hit hard sort of in the subsequent decades by the deregulation of the employment market and you'd have a lot of these grizzlies sort of you know guys who who would lament the days when you know it was just an easy life all year and then you'd go down to wellington for a month sit across the table from the unions 
you know, thump, <laughs> thump the tables, threaten each other, yell, uh, drink heavily into the night <laughs> every day, and then at the end of it, you'd come out with a collective agreement for the next year, and then you go back to you know. So those from. bosses were at that time bemoaning the end of those award rounds. Yeah, well, of course, because because essentially all of these employer groups were the same as the unions. You know, it was essentially compulsory yeah, right. to be part of them, and and so but they surely had a they lot were of, the voices that were fighting hard, lobbying hard for the removal of those particular structures? No, that was more people like the business roundtable, so okay. the, the actual sort of employers and their, you know, the business owners as opposed to the sort of groups that represented them. You know, the, the, this was a big part of the sort of reforms of the 80s was getting rid of these sort of vested interest groups. Now, there, there was a stri- in, in 1991, all of this was just stripped away. The Employment Contracts Act came in and essentially uh, – you went much more back to that sort of 19th century sort of uh, situation where it was deemed that an employer and an employee were just two people who could come to an agreement with with each other. Just two humans. Just just two humans. Just a couple just, of yeah. ordinary pals. Yeah. Yeah. Just pals yeah. hanging out. Just equals. Just a meeting of equals. Yeah. Chatting over how they would like their individual yeah. bespoke tailored agreement to work out. Yeah. Just like <laughs> a little bit of backyard cricket <laughs> between Dennis Lilly and a toddler. Yeah. And, Beautiful uh, thing. And, and, and depending on who you listen to, you know, so the, the union membership, collective agreements, uh, just you know, really fell away. Uh, union membership collapsed. Yep, union membership collapsed under the Employment Contracts Act. You can have extremely flexible arrangements. So, you know, I, I'm I'm hiring my podcast co-hosts. I'm putting them each on a month long contract. At the end of the month, we'll review it again. You could do this for you know any job. That was seen as perfectly sort of reasonable. They made our employment markets extremely flexible, as the economists say. Uh, but it, but like it t- a it, yoga it, instructor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but it took the <laughs> <laughs> downward dog hard. <laughs> um, Labor government sort of you know swung the pendulum back a little bit when Helen Clark's government came into office. They instituted this thing. Called They'd already faith. swung the the pendulum hard the other way. To, it's worth pointing out under Douglas that was then picked up subsequently under the national government with the Plum Contract Act. Yeah, well, it's just true, Ben. It's the the Employment Contracts Act was a real step change, like a, like an enormous one. Um, and the you know the, the Clark government sort of kept the Employment Contracts Act, renamed it the Employment Relations Act, and added in a few more protections like. Uh, good faith bargaining, they gave unions more powers, uh, you know, you could no longer bar unionists from your workplace from recruiting members, um, things like that, um, and 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 they removed the sort of ability to make everything fixed term agreements. They said it is a relationship, it's an ongoing relationship if you want to make something, you know, one of these extremely arbitrary, you can't have arbitrary fixed terms, it's got to have a, a decent reason that put the kibosh on some of the worst excesses of that. Um, but, you know, Employers still tried to find ways around it. You know, zero-hour contracts were a big thing uh, under the previous uh, national government and and Michael Woodhouse, who was the uh, workplace relations minister, um, you know, introduced legislation to ban those um, after some very good work from the Unite Union, who I think we're next to now. Right there. We're next to the Unite Union see now. Sign. Yeah. yeah, exciting. Maybe that's what I was thinking about. Maybe it was subliminal advertising. Mm. So, sorry, with, with all of that sort of, like, background, this is... Uh, this is this is probably the biggest change since the Employment Contracts Act, because this will basically reinstate essentially you know compulsory bargaining within particular sectors um, and centralised sort of wage setting. So the arguments the, the arguments for you know that, so that business groups are making against that is that uh, is that you know. The circumstances of different employers vary greatly. You know, you can't be prescriptive about these things. You don't want somebody in Invercargill being paid the same as somebody in Auckland. They're very different costs. I'm pretty sure the Act allows that to be. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. These things will all be able to be negotiated. So, so, so that someone, yeah. Which leads to the second objection, which is that these things will become extremely complex. Um, you know, so Eric Crampton, the New Zealand Initiative economist, uh, I think on Twitter the other day was bringing up an example of you know one of these centralised contracts in Australia – 
where you know if if you're you've got a you've got to label every employee in terms of what they're being paid so you know what one person who's working at a bar they can collect table they can collect glasses from tables but they can't serve a drink at the bar because that's a different employee categorization mm. has different a slightly different pay rate so you know there is an argument about the complexity that will be involved in there both in the negotiations which could draw go on for a long time, be very difficult to manage, um, and then complexity for employers, you know, applying those contracts. One of the other... Employers who may have had nothing to do with the actual negotiations, you know. Just sure. Sort of One on of the, the other desk. criticisms that was made was that um, that it might lift wages, which was great. I'm pretty sure that's not a bug. That's on, on, um, honest, a feature. Honestly, the, Tory MPs, right? Like they're, they're just the, not, even, they're not even taking it but, seriously anymore. In the old days, you'd just, you'd just say, this is going to decrease flexibility for employers. <laughs> like- yeah. um, uh, the, you mentioned Australia, and it's worth pointing out that the template for this, this legislation is very much legislation that's been in place in Australia, I think, since the last Labor government. Uh, the, Annabelle, one of the, one of the other things that I think is worth noting is that it's not going to create this incredible bursting of a dam and everybody's going to be doing it. There's a limit, I think it's four or five that can be done in a year. There's a public interest test that could kick in. And so it's not like all of a sudden there's going to be, you know, it's going to be like 1970s level of people in pay negotiations and so on. But but it, Ben's right, isn't it? It is it is a, a, a big, especially for a Labour government, for um, industrial law, this is a big deal. It is, and and it has the ability, if it if it works well, to solve a number of um, of issues that we're facing as a country. You know, like the working poor um, is a real problem for us. It's not that we have, um, it's not that people aren't working hard. When you hear this narrative around, you know, a meritocracy, and if people work hard, they can they can live good lives and we've got to get people, you know, out of benefits and lift their incomes. And yet there's this desire, you know, the the right rails against lifting minimum wages and all of this, all, all of that sort of stuff. And then um, upset about the, the brain drain to Australia. People are going to Australia because they earn better incomes there. So we, we desperately need to raise our low wage economy. And in doing so, we can, address a, a whole raft of social issues, health, housing, um, education, all of that sort of stuff. So I, I think it'll probably end up being the most important thing that, that Labor does um, this term. Yeah, it's certainly the most significant legislation that they've, they're, they've, they're currently putting through. Um, the, so the justification for it, um, the, the sort of examples that they'll probably be starting off with First of all, to reduce the complexity of the the process, but also because this, these are essentially the sort of people that they're targeting, uh, like for instance, the you know the the bus companies in Wellington or cleaners, supermarket where, workers, where, yeah, supermarket workers, where you've got where you've got a a number of big employers who employ you know the, mm. probably the majority of the workforce, and where they compete against each other and and this is why you know the bus buses and uh, cleaners you know the the only way the way that they primarily compete is on price and the way that they can compete on price is by driving down wages so this this makes it very hard for unions to get in and sort of uh, bargain up the wages uh, because if 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 you know, we've we've seen that NZ bus down in Wellington actually pays higher wages and has better benefits than the other companies that tender for the same public public transport contracts down there. Uh, but what that means is that New Zealand bus have become less competitive over time, and so I've been losing those contracts. So you can you can get the Unite Union in; they're not the union in that area, but you can get them in. They can organise the workplace. They can demand better contracts, and all that means is that now this business is not competitive with its competitor, which will sweep up all the all of all of the contracts. And so, fair pay agreements are a way of you know the, the stated intention is to stop. Uh, you know what they call a race to the bottom. Uh, you know, predicated on basically driving down your wage costs, which and wage costs are income for for if you're an employee, um, and and 
you know, supermarket workers, obviously, because there's two to three main employers in the country. Uh, so that's that's quite an easy one to look They're at. They're doing it tough, it's, those supermarket it, companies. It seems to me that the um, companies that's going to hurt are the ones that can actually really afford to be seriously hurt. Or, or it will hurt them equally, mm. which that that's sort of the mechanism at play, is that if it ra- raises the costs, it raises the costs for all of them, mm. except the ones who are already paying higher wages, it's, which, it's, the, which it's, you know, in a market economy is usually none of them because they have to compete on wages. This is a non-controversial and substantial piece of legislation, and I think it's worth mentioning Michael Wood, not to be confused with Michael Woodhouse, who you um, <laughs> alluded to a moment ago, who has been one of the most effective one of the most effective ministers. There was the the um, the the bridge bike path stuff was a slight blot on his record, but apart from that, he's had to oversee the um, introduction of the light rail in Auckland, which we'll talk about in, in, in pods to come. But in terms of this and in his other, he's one of the one of the kind of top shelf of. Having been there a relatively short time, one of the one of the better performers in the in cabinet, isn't he? Yeah, and look, a guy like Michael Wood really shows the advantage of getting experience in there. You know, he's only a, uh, he's a second, former union negotiator, second term MP, yeah. but yeah, he he spent a lot of time in the union movement and as a local councillor. So most of the big public transport things he's or most of the big transport issues he's dealing with are in Auckland, and uh, you know he knows that employment space extremely well. So the the other thing is that just on a personal level, he's completely unruffleable. <laughs> and, you know, that, that you can't underestimate the importance of that for a minister, you know, who has to go in and yeah. talk about how you're, you're building a $500 million bike bridge and then a few months later <laughs> appear on TV and say, actually, you're not. And it's yeah. cost $51 million so far, but that's how things are. And just not break a sweat, not change your expression. Um, he's a huge asset for the government. Um, and, and it's sort of... And it does show up, you know, the problems that this government's had um, with the sort of paucity of talent, you know, mm. p- putting uh, inexperienced people, people who don't know the portfolios, into areas requiring major change. We saw that with mental health. Uh, we saw that with, you know, the consumer finance legislation. We see it, we see it with a lot of things that they do. So whether, whether this is sort of perfect legislation or not, I, I think there will be a lot of hiccups in the initial implementation. Um, and one thing that I'm really puzzled by is the... Uh, putting the Employment Relations Authority in as the final decider of contractual terms, uh, you know, in the event that um, agreement can't be reached. The Employment Relations Authority is essentially a group of former uh, former academics, unionists, mm. uh, employment lawyers, um, you know, they're, they're competent at their jobs, but that's generally mediating disputes about personal grievances or unfair firings. They're not industry experts, uh, it really, I would have thought that you would have a specialist body for that rather than just uh, mm. somebody mm. on about sort of 100 grand a year. This has gone by lunchtime. We will be back in a moment. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. Annabelle. Yes. One current Labour MP who I'm not picking for a cabinet post in the near future is Louisa Wall. I don't know if you agree with that. She uh, has been provided with... A new role, a Pacific Equity, Pacific Gender Equality Ambassador, which... Uh, a job that definitely exists. A job that will exist <laughs> in the near future. But having said that, I mean, the, we talked about Louisa Wall uh, on the last podcast, and I wasn't necessarily expecting to talk about her again on this podcast, but here she is. And she, there was some talk 
about was this was this role created to keep her quiet? Well, if that was the idea, <laughs> if that was the idea, it didn't work because she gave two, you know, fairly uh, explosive interviews, one with Audrey Young in The Herald, the other with Jack Tame on Q&A, in which she kind of did not hold back in uh, revealing her sense of being let down, her sense of being betrayed, her sense of being sidelined by Jacinda Ardern and others in the Labour leadership. I'm sort of beginning to wonder whether in the new role she will sort of suddenly come up with these extended analogies to describe any factor in in the world of Pacific (laughs) gender equality to describe, well, I can tell you one thing that is... Do you, what do you what do you what do you make of it all? Has she gone too far in doing that? Is it just that's that's what you that you reap what you sow? What do you think? I don't think so. I think that you know someone who served as long as she has that she's entitled to tell her own story about um, her time as an MP. I mm. actually disagreed that it was no holds barred and that she um, there were holds barred. Uh, well, I, I actually thought that she came across as fairly reasonable. You know, mm-hmm. she said that Jacinda had the right to pick her own cabinet mm. um, and she wasn't in it and, you know, that Jack would have to ask Jacinda why. I thought, um, I, I actually think it's a mark of her mana that despite the way she was sidelined, mm. um, that instead of becoming a destructive, disruptive MP who leaked against her party and caused all sorts of trouble, she actually knuckled down and continued to do a really good job and got some important pieces of legislation across the line. I think she truly is a kaupapa-driven person. And it was, you know, it was gross seeing the Mike Williams and that come out of the, the woodwork and start slamming her. Like, she's entitled to be able to tell her her story and share her for and I don't think it was um, disrespectful or rude. I don't think she was um, nasty. I thought that she she was just um, telling the truth from her perspective. Mm. Ben, you made the point in a column you wrote that uh, while well, politics is better for having uh, people like Lewis Wall, if everyone was like Lewis Wall, the system wouldn't work. If caucuses were, everyone was like Lewis Wall, but shouldn't we have a system where Individuals like Lewis Wool, who's we discussed this before, whose achievements are formidable. Her legislative achievements are better than you know a dozen other MPs combined over over longer careers. I think other but, people, as a strategy, might have chosen to make her a minister yeah. for that reason, so that you know she does come under some collective responsibility, and there's some more um, structure and and. and and, and control around her, like to me that would have been the smarter thing to do would be to keep her close in your camp and under the, you know, ministerial responsibilities as opposed to, to, to leaving her out like that. And I think the fact that she just got on with the mahi is incredible, really. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought she could have been a bit more discreet. Uh, there's, there's no point relitigating all of this stuff as you're on your way out the door. In terms of... Uh, you know, having just talked about employment relationships, an MP, of course, is not an employment relationship. Uh, you're an elected official. That means that when you leave your job, even if you come to some kind of sort of handshake arrangement about, uh, you know, being set up with a nice new position, uh, you know, one that certainly did not used to exist, you know, the MFAT were never sort of sitting around thinking, well, we need a Pacific gender ambassador. I wonder, should we advertise? What should we do there? Uh, <laughs> should we get on sync? <laughs> should we? <laughs> uh, you know, this this was clearly an arrangement, right? And as part of that, you would expect a bit of, you know, probably a bit of discretion was probably expected. At the same time, you can't sign a contract with an MP and then a future public servant and say this is contingent on that. Um, so the Prime Minister, yeah, a bit of a sitting duck in terms of having the grievances aired. Um, but I, look, I, I think it's not, I don't think it's particularly helpful. She has an outstanding record. Uh, people were concentrating on that. People were also talking about how she'd probably been a bit hard done by. I think by going to the public with her complaints, she just sounds she just sounds like any other disaffected MP who, um, you know, didn't quite get where they wanted to. And I think that's a shame for you know, how how we remember her. Um, 
In in the end, uh, you know, I, th- I mean, well, the, the real end tomorrow at her valedictory speech, mm. uh, the prime. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern say? That, um, uh, it's on a Thursday and I won't be there because that's just the pattern of my movements around the country on a Thursday. It's true that Prime Ministers are not usually in the House on a Thursday. And that's absolutely true. It's, 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 it's less common for a valedictory that you really want to be at to be scheduled sure. for the Thursday before a long weekend. But I thought, I thought it was Louisa that had requested that she deliver her valedictory on a Thursday for that specific reason. I'm pretty sure I read that. But in terms of the, the role that she's been given, I mean, clearly I think it's a tohu of um, of the strength of her relationship with Nanaya probably as, as the Minister for MFAT. Um and while clearly it's been constructed for her, that's not to say that a role like that isn't needed in the Pacific, and I think she'll do an excellent job there. As far as we're aware, no role yet created for Ashley Bloomfield, who is another departing uh, servant of the public. He, full-time New Zealand sweetheart. He, well, yeah, you know, um, still life model, I, I thought. The, he he is announced for, for, for fan art of yeah. him riding a triceratops. Exactly. <laughs> he was director of, is director general of health, of course. Nobody needs to be introduced to him. Annabelle, he's leaving in July, I think. There's been a few other departures, senior departures in the in the Ministry of Health. What do you, how would you sum up his contribution over the last few years? The response to COVID wasn't perfect, but certainly probably one of the best in the world. Um, I think he saved tens of thousands of lives, thousands of Māori lives. I think he's, you know, he'll be remembered as one of our our top, um, our, our top serving public servants. Um, I think it reflects badly on Andrew Little as the Minister of Health that he hasn't been able to retain Ashley. Hmm. Um, I think that it shows that in terms of the the change to the is it the New Zealand Health Authority is that what we're calling it and health the Maori Health NZ and in the, the Maori Health Authority that they hadn't they either hadn't considered or hadn't want wanted to create a position for him in there because essentially it'll be like like the Ministry of Health will become like TPK really, won't it? Like basically a sort of minister, like a policy. It'll, it'll, a policy. Be, it'll be a shrunken, shrunken outfit. Yeah. It'll have a public health agency within it, but it'll be shrunken and lose some of its commissioning role. Yeah, yeah. so obviously not probably that appealing or exciting I think he. For him. I think. I think. I mean. I think I after think, I think, on a personal level, if you just face that level of, I, this is total conjecture, but if you've been through that incredible COVID experience, and then you look up and there's this massive restructure where you have to go to five thousand million meetings in order to deal with people whose all of whose roles are changing, all of who need to renegotiate, you just think, fuck that. I do think too that possibly after the whole David Clark incident, where David was mean to Ashley on stage, and then Ashley like a. a a, a, like a flutter of a sad face, and then New Zealand was like outraged and ready to kill that people had hurt Ashley's feelings. Yeah. I reckon that might have spooked the government a little bit. <laughs> well, no, like, I, look, oh I th- my I god! Think hang on, what the hell? I think there's something to that in the the government. Uh, you know, and this and this is an analogy. I'm not calling him a monster, but the government did sort of create a bit of a monster with Bloomfield in the sense that. You know, he was this very reassuring figure. You know, he was a doctor, he was a public health expert at exactly the right time to have that sort of person as the head of the Ministry of Health. Ministry of Health is not an operational agency and they were forced into that role uh, because of COVID. Yeah. And, you know, plenty of mistakes were made, uh, you know, in terms of the, the border testing, in terms of PPE supplies, a whole lot of operational, you know, missteps, as, as you know, you might expect, you know, when you're sort of, you know, running to stand still. There's a lot of steps. There's always going to be a few missteps. A lot, of, steps, lot, that lot many of steps. You do, yeah. do 25,000 a, a day on this. It's just the law of like. step statistics. Yeah. Um, but in a way, I think that the discussion about, you know, what's actually Bloomfield's legacy is sort of the wrong one in the sense that 
this the, the COVID response is the responsibility of the government. You know, officials are there to provide advice to, you know, there, there, there's some operational sort of um, capacity under the, the pandemic legislation. But essentially, you're serving the government, you're, you're, you're advising them, and then you're implementing their policy. Um, we shouldn't be if if you don't implement the policy correctly. You know, David Clark was right when the when the border testing failures happened. Technically, that was Ashley Bloomfield's wheelhouse because it was an operational matter. But that doesn't matter because as the minister, David Clark is responsible for That's that. Right. If Ashley Bloomfield's not doing it, why isn't he doing it? And then you land at the Minister of Health's desk again. And we've lo- you know we've really you know that line got very blurred during the pandemic. We would you know that he would be up. Th- on the podium, the prime minister would be deferring. She would announce all of her, uh, you know, things saying, you know, we have accepted, you know, the the director general's advice, or according to the director general's advice, we are doing this. When actually, you know, if 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 you're if you're the government, you say we are doing this. You know, we got advice on a bunch of different things, and we're doing this. Doesn't matter. Does it matter? Why does that matter? The reason it matters is because I think that in the end, we started thinking that this was actually Bloomfield's response to COVID-19. And it's not. You know, the, 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 the government, I think, was perfectly willing to sort of, you know, because they said we're guided by, you know, we're just following the evidence. We're following the sure. science. We're following sure. the advice. Now, they were, they were rolling that out in all sorts of, you know, economic areas, social areas, things which actually aren't, you know, health questions. They're not at, at Bloomfield's expertise. There's, there's no reason you would follow Ashley Bloomfield's advice on economic matters. And in fact, he didn't tender it, right? But, but it was convenient for the government to say, we are following the advice of the good doctor here, the, the reassuring, calm man standing next to me on the podium while I answer questions about the National Party and its leadership and, you know, which is really yeah, it's a, it's a very uncomfortable place. I, think, I think that's true that occasionally some of those lines did blur. I think that's a fair point. At the same time, I think what you have to credit Bloomfield with was being the expert mm. on that podium mm. who was able to explain in very clear, accessible and authoritative but also kind of gentle terms the the reality of the crisis that we were facing, the health crisis. Yeah. And if you look around the world at um, equivalent figures. Some of them are more the public health people rather than he was the director general of health. And look at some of the director general health's directors general of health perhaps that we've had in the past. I feel like we were pretty fortunate to have someone who wasn't necessarily, who certainly wasn't expecting to take mm. that role. I don't think I don't think he invited. It. I don't even. I mean, did he relish? I don't think he did particularly. But I think he was very generous with his. You know, with his with his 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 personality and with his his intelligence. Yeah, I think you know? when you know, like when taking away all of the tikanga around, you know, government and who do, does what and all of that stuff. When you come back to the fact that we were a, a team of five million facing something that we'd never seen in our lifetime, and people were scared and confused and unsure and no one knew what, what what was going to happen and what was going to play out. He was an incredibly reassuring presence throughout, um, you know, over the last two years. And I, I don't think we should be quick to dismiss that or, or undervalue how important that was to have someone who could break things down, as you say, Tobe, you know, very simply and make it, us feel, you know, as individuals, as families that, we were going to be okay if we followed this very simple advice and and um, and um, yeah, m- making us feel like we were going to we were going to get through it okay and created a sense of social cohesion during that time. We are almost done. Before we go, uh, just a, a word on uh, Moana Jackson, who who died since the last time we podcast, and he, a a legal scholar, a public intellectual, a mentor to many. Uh, Annabelle, you probably had a bit to do with Moana Jackson. I I interviewed him a couple of times and and was always struck by how generous he was in terms of his time. Um, And one of the things that I think about just having, having had various conversations with him is that he's is there's something about obviously an incredible, incredible brain, an incredible knowledge of of, of law and history and, and everything else, but um, 
you know how some people talk about humor as being a device where you kind of, when you get people laughing, you can stuck them, stick the nourishing things in. I sort of fell with him in a way. It wasn't, wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't a comedian at all, but he was, there was something so almost soothing about the way he would talk and convey information that he would sort of, you didn't feel, you never felt like you were being lectured to. You felt like almost like you were being, I don't know, massaged or something. There was something about, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are about, about his contribution and also just his, his character. There's a saying in Te Ao Māori, um, he kōtuku reringa tahi, a kōtuku of a single flight, which, you know, mm. speaks to the unique qualities of a of a certain leader, the specialness of a certain leader, I guess what you'd call a once-in-a-generation kind of leader. And it's a phrase that's probably overused, but but in my mind, Juana Jackson is really the embodiment of of that whakatauki he kōtuku reringatahi he was such a a special man with such unique qualities um his you know his formidable intellect his gentle approach the way he could um bring people into the fold his his you know is patriot the right word he he was a true patriot of of Aotearoa he envisaged a better nation for all of us and like you say, Tobe, just so incredibly generous with his with his time and his aroha. And um and I mean it just it really breaks my heart that as this um debate starts to ramp up about um co governance and what it means that we've lost Moana. Like we need him so desperately at this moment and in time and we are all poorer in Aotearoa for, for having lost him. But man, weren't we lucky to have him in the first place? And his legacy lived on in a way even at his tangi. He had requested that uh, women speak on the pie and uh, it just sort of in a way sums up his contributions living on. Yeah, and, and to me it kind of speaks about, you know, about these issues, about these interesting issues that, that really have to be debated amongst us as Māori. It's not for the Judith Collins of the world to tell us what we should be doing on our marae, and it's it's not that um, that that Māori aren't already having these discussions amongst ourselves. And yeah, I just thought, you know, as someone who is like such an a, an awesome friend to to Wahine and mentored so many incredible Wahine, um, it was you know, exactly the sort of thing that Moana would do, that he would create space for Wahine to share their, their whakaro and their stories about him. And some of the kōrero was so beautiful. My tuakana, Tina Wycliffe, um, got up and spoke on behalf of, of her mum, who is a remarkable um, Māori land court judge, and her kōrero was just so beautiful. And, um, yeah, again, um these are important discussions, but they have to be had amongst Māori, although I did see on Twitter Judith Collins kind of jumped on the bandwagon and, and was trying to ramp it up and a few people came back to her. But, you know, when she enters those conversations, it's kind of like saying, well, would you, if you're so pro-Māori women speaking, is the National Party prepared to give up some of their speaking spots in Parliament <coughs> next week and make way for these women? No, of course not, because that's the tikanga of Parliament. And on our marae, on our on the mental health report. <laughs> on our marae, we have our our own tikanga, just like Parliament ha- has its own. And if we change it, there has to be a discussion amongst us as Maori, not not for outsiders. Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Tiahe. Thank you, beloved listeners of Combo Lunchtime. We will return soon. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.